Welcome to Queer in Love, the podcast where we explore queer relationships through a queer lens. I'm Diego Amado, and in each episode, I talk to queers about love, pop culture, kink, politics, and beyond. In part two of my conversation with Molly, we talk about queerness and spirituality, the heteronormativity in queer nuclear families, and being proudly femme. And now, here's Molly. So I did want to ask, do you have any kind of queer spiritual practice? Are you agnostic? What is your take on spirituality, if any? Yeah, that's a great question. So my my queerness is interrelated with spirituality. Like queerness for me is a spiritual experience. For me, I have had different experiences with different kind of modes of spiritual practices that I was exposed to when I was young. I was raised in a secular household but it was really adjacent to like conservative megachurch Christianity through yeah. my mom's closest sister. And then just the kids in my apartment complex where I grew up, a lot of them went there and I would go with them. And then my genetic father's side is um, Irish American. And uh, there, there's sort of this like stereotype, which I have found to be true, that Celts are like, kind of mystical and woo-woo and, you know, fairies and leprechauns and astrology and shit. And so it was very much like my grandmother being like, don't mind your dad, honey. He's just a Sagittarius. And I was like, what the hell does that mean? You know? And then I would like learn about astrology as a kid and just like absorbed it and thought it was really fun and interesting. And then like I later went into social science and there's a lot Mm. of those attributes, you know, and then um, really putting education on a pedestal. And this idea that if you're born into an educated, like middle class or above family, you have this sort of special knowledge and ways of being that can't ever be substituted or accessed. Mm -hmm. Um, I really had this period where I was like, fuck all of that. I'm pro science. Like, this is bullshit. And then, of course, you just just know better. Right. Right. And then I learned to deconstruct how much science was full of shit and, um, you know, full of all kinds of assumptions and colonial violence. Um, And then I come back to being like, oh, okay, right. Nobody knows for sure. And that's not the point to me. And like Jung has some kind of quote about this or whatever, but the experience of being a person, the mystery is embedded, right? Nobody can say for sure. Mm -hmm. But what we can say for sure is that the mystery is nevertheless mysterious. And whether or not you want to give any credence to Mm -hmm. that, whether or not you want to engage with that isn't the point. To me, it is just a fact of life that there is a fucking universe out there that can never be fully answered. And just like my healing and just like my love and just like my self-love and my queer love, it's all love. It's boundless. It can't ever fully be defined. And therefore, it can't ever be surgically moved around in some way that's going to make it finite. And coming from that place... I am a much like happier, softer person. And I want to just keep nurturing that. And so as much as I want partners who like get that this world was not designed for anybody, even the ones it was designed for, and I don't want them to necessarily feel happy about that. I'm not interested in people who aren't finding their own sense of joie de vivre and joy of life. Because nevertheless, I think it's a huge gift to be alive. And I feel very fortunate. And part of that is survivor guilt because of exceptionalism and then the myths of meritocracy and being a poster child for comeuppance and all that crap Um, and feeling like, why me? Why did I get the golden ticket? But even beyond the trappings of guilt and the immediate world that I live in, like I am, I'm so glad I get to see these birds every day. 
I looked at I looked at these like two woodpeckers like yesterday afternoon for like a long time and lost track of time. That's very good. And that's yeah, I'm fucking gay. (laughs) But I like I like the idea that that queer relationship there there's something about queerness that is spiritual, as you're saying. I mean, for my wedding, it was more about a community. It was a Quaker inspired, you know what I mean? So it was it was mm-hmm. much more communal. Being queer and being together. It was a very queer wedding. There's a lot of queer people. Yes. I like this idea of being together as queer people, that being a spiritual practice, not needing the kind of bells and whistles of worship, right? To mm-hmm. to, to have a sense of spirituality. Mm-hmm. Well, and especially because I think so much of what in a Western framework, spirituality is about is this is this idea divinity is something that's like perfect. Divinity is kind of a liberation in a Christian practice. Like you're going to finally be free. You know, you're going to be permanently happy. Blah blah blah. And I think for queerness, not only does it disrupt that in really powerful ways, it's also like, oh wait a minute, this was the freedom I needed, and that's very spiritual, and it's uplifting. Do you remember the first time you were? queerly in love well uh it's hard to say what that really means just like one of your previous Mm. guests said right and so you're gonna say well the way that it resonates with you most and I'd say in the most typical way that I would think of that and that most people would think of that would probably be this last relationship which I feel embarrassed Mm. about right because we were together for three months we didn't even get to like see each other all the time like it seemed very um paltry when you try to enumerate it i mean if you told me we were together for three days and i'd be like no you know three (laughs) months i think is a fair amount of time to know someone well i've kind of only dated people for three months it's been it's been that's been it and and i don't think it's like a good idea to date for three months it's not like it's been an agenda but for me it would took a long time to even be in my body to have the kind of sex and touch that was fulfilling and desirable yeah. and and vulnerable and yet somehow safe enough to want more and now that i've had a taste of that i'm just like becoming all of these stereotypes that i had hated and criticized and tried to protect myself from my Wait, entire such, youth such as which was such as being the dumb, desperate, single, 35-plus spinster woman who just is, like, so hungry for a relationship. And I always pitied that. I thought that was backward and sad and all of that sort of thing. And I've had so many of those desires, especially that I know were exacerbated by the pandemic, in particular because I was having the most, like, affirming touch I had ever experienced up until mid-February, I had a little, I had two weeks to cry on my friend's shoulders and, and get one rebound. Uh, that gets, yeah. like saves my ego a little. But then, then the whole world shut down in an unprecedented way. And as much as it makes so many, so much sense on so many levels that everyone was like, okay, just stay home with the people you're closest with. I was happily contented living alone, but I was at a very vulnerable, lonely time yeah. And so to watch everyone close their doors and just be with their next of kin, that expression, that idea is so heteronormative. Your next of kin is the most important yeah. and it's biological yeah. or, or contracted through marriage. This yeah, is yeah. who counts. And everybody else is some kind of nebulous friend who doesn't count. And for me, queerness is like, fuck all of that. Right. We all count. All of these kinds of dynamics and constellations are important, even though emotional labor and energy is not 
infinite. And, and then particularly so many of my more hardcore queer friends who are deliberately not married and deliberately not having children by the time we're in our mid thirties, which is pretty rare, um, straight or queer in my experience, yeah. it was still a like, well, I'm here, I'm shacked up with my sweetie and that's that. And I wasn't invited. And I'm like a popular person, despite what people might think based yeah. on this podcast interview. Like I have I'm a lot popular. of friends. I'm very, <laughs> yeah, I am. It's weird. Like no, I don't, I it's it. like, I, I can't it. even feel, I can't even feel too embarrassed by saying it. Cause it's just weird to me. Cause I was not a popular kid, which probably is also not Same. surprising. And, yeah, yeah. And, but like, I have like, I have a strong network of all different kinds of people in my life, you know, who aren't just my peers, former colleagues, people much older than me, much younger, all these things. I'm loved. I'm connected. I am cared for. People have shown up for me. I am so fortunate. I'm so yeah. fortunate. And I got zero invites to be in a pod. And I got brave enough to ask two different people to be in their pods. And they said no. And I was fucking pissed. I was devastated and pissed. And I was going through touch deprivation in a very hard time. Part of me was also grateful for parts of the initial part of the pandemic. Not that people were dying unnecessarily and all the state sanctioned violence and all this horror, but this is more sort of ideological, like, well, shit, you've been praying, literally praying for us to slow the fuck down, right? Like, don't we have enough stuff? Don't we do enough stuff? Can we just fucking sit? And just like be okay for a second and just deal with what's here instead of thinking that a baby or a relationship or whatever, something more is going to fulfill the things that are feeling empty or not working. And so there was this sense of like, well, shit, we have to just sit for a minute. You've been praying for this literally. So you brought it on us. You pray for it. Now here we are. (laughs) It's my fault. (laughs) You're That's welcome. how powerful you are. Yeah, but, but exactly. So, but let's get but into popular, it. popular, so, and <laughs> humble, too. Um. But I, I, let's get into it, though, because I think you've said a couple of times something that I, I do like to talk about. And obviously, as you were saying, during the pornocopia, it got, it was exacerbated, right? So what's going on with queer children? Because I think what you're saying is there's this way in which queer people can reproduce a lot of these heteronormative relationships and, and behaviors and I think sometimes when queers have children, mm-hmm. exactly what you're saying, right? They becomes a mm-hmm. nuclear family, which is mm-hmm. a form of affective, intimate organization mm-hmm. that comes from transactions between men and women, like heterosexual life, right? So, but I feel like you have some feelings about that. Well, I mean, I think what, because I'm like very pro like women and children and um mm-hmm like across the board. And the, and a big reason why is because even among the best intended queers who are married with young ch- children in my life and more broadly, they are still again living in the heteronormative world. And materially, we do not support women and children, right? We don't mm-hmm. financially and institutionally support them. Mm-hmm, we abandon mm-hmm. them. And so what that does is it overburdens women, right? Even even the queers who know it's bullshit are still subject to the fact that nobody's going to watch their kids without it costing an arm and a leg. It's not at all built into our world that there is some substantive alternative to things like daycare or the lack of daycare. And the days go by so fast and all the chores still need to get done that are beyond child rearing. And never mind, you have to just catch up as a person and you have this other relationship. And so 
with with maybe like commune situations or you know cooperatively living otherwise i think the queerest thing we have that's institutionalized is the multi-generational family which we look down upon for being poor and associated Mm. with brown and black folks and immigrants and this kind of non-sterling western civilized way of being um and children are incredibly expensive and so that requires more money um and to have your own home and property yeah Exactly. And so like, I think for Gen Gen X and older queers, what I've heard from them in my life, they're like, I wasn't around a bunch of breeders, queer breeders in my 30s. It was like a millennials started this trend, you know, and part of that is because we got more social access to mainstream institutions, which is good and very fraught. I don't care about marriage equality like I care about getting rid of marriage as a way that you are materially selected and uh, prioritized by the state. I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's a good idea. Um, it just, the idea that s- this love counts and that consensual love doesn't count to me is disgusting when it's coming from a source that is headed by sexual predators. I was going to say, right, it's the, the incentives from the government. They're not necessarily for women and children. It's more that's right for particular forms of because it's, reproduction, et cetera. It's, it, it really benefits the patriarchy to have women do a bunch of free work. there's just no way around it and so that's also what's going on with the queer nuclear families in my life and when I've had this will be my third move because I lost because I like lost my job and then I couldn't get my taxes back and then I couldn't get unemployment because of things that were beyond my control so I was like "Uh oh in really dire straits for a minute and so I stayed with some dear friends who are a young queer family and then I moved into the where I'm at now, who are a young queer family. And if it weren't for them, I'd be really shit out of luck. So it's not about vilifying them or saying that they don't have time for me, because that's just simply not true. Right. But on this structural level, they're, they don't, they're not able to be even the queers that they want to be, because it's just materially pretty impossible. And I think I have more queer friends and young nuclear family situations because of my feminine gender like experiences and I'm friends with a lot of women and at 35 I can attest to how much your body's like oh my god make a baby oh my god have a baby (laughs) it's like really hardcore you know and I'm like yeah that's not gonna happen but thanks for letting me know if you were to find a partner would you consider it um, I would adopt a family member of my extended family who needed ho- a home, and I would okay. care for them. I would not biologically reproduce. I, I, I think climate chaos is very scary, and I do yeah. not feel comfortable bringing a baby into the world knowing that I'm going to set them up for a lifestyle that is literally going to be uninhabitable and unsustainable by the time they're adults. Yeah. But if we didn't have looming eco-catastrophe, I would totally do it. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I have. I definitely want to be a mom. I definitely want to be pregnant. But wow. this is, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> but no. I, but I might be a mom in other ways. Yeah. And I'm very nurturing in general, and I mother myself because I think a lot of, I don't know any parent who isn't projecting their own fantasies of childhood and and parenthood onto their kid. It doesn't mean they're not doesn't mean you can't desire them or that they're bad just try not to play into the fantasy so like without question you know yeah and also coming from a single mom like you know and helping raise little siblings and stuff like it is hard fucking work it is not glamorous like 
And you look like yeah. a bad person no matter what you do when you're, when you're a parent, especially, I think, a mom parent. Um, yeah. And that's really hard. So you have a queer community around you, you said, and you know a lot of mm-hmm. queers. What are some queer role models that you had growing up and maybe some now? Yes, I love that. Um, so growing up, it was something that I was really scared to even think about in myself. Um, so I definitely didn't have any queer role models in my physical immediate life, but I definitely looked up to RuPaul as a child. Mm-hmm. I thought she was so gorgeous. My uh, my Irish-American Catholic kind of woo-woo grandmother was super into gay culture and like she had spent most of her adult life in, she was born in 1924. She spent most wow. of her adult life in the Bay Area and she loved drag queens and she loved drag shows wow. and she exposed me to Priscilla Queen of the Desert and the the Robin Williams, Williams remake of The Birdcage. And yes. I had a very much a like, like, oh, it's great to be gay, especially if you're a gay man. And who doesn't want to dress up like a fabulous feminine woman? Because I was very femme as a kid. I mean, My That same grandmother, her closest sibling, and, you know, she was Irish Catholic, so she obviously had a lot, um, was, a, was a dyke and was, a, was the matriarch of that side of the family. But I didn't ever know her because she died when I was young after being quite sick. But it was still very much a, like, being a gay woman is can actually put you in this place of, of like respect and authority, which was super interesting to me. But her sister was very butch and I didn't ever really identify as butch. I, I, I identify, I guess, as like a tomboy femme or whatever now. Mm. And I'm always trying to be more butch, but I will always be femme, always very proudly. And, and then as an adult, people who I don't actually know who I look up to as role models are, are very much queer feminist scholars, mostly of color and activists, mm-hmm. you know, like Gloria Saldua. Mm-hmm. I was very much a millennial who went to college and like discovered who Audre Lorde was in early aughts after she was long publishing. And, um, and then when I was 19, I met that dykey great aunt's longtime partner for real. And her oh. name was, her name was Phyllis. Phil Manley was her actual name. No way. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay, and she was it. this fabulous love artist. It. And she was just this wonderful person. And everybody knew she was special. Like, you just felt special when you were in her vicinity. And she had this way of showing up and doing all this hard work and being tough and rugged so gently you know, and had this like million dollar smile that puts you at ease. And she was insightful and this incredible conversationalist and she was perceptive and intuitive and wise. And she thought that I was really special, which was just, you know, the way that I was seen. And she was the first family member who was of my like family of origin, like a biogenetic family, even though we weren't technically genetically related, mm-hmm. where I felt like I could be completely myself without a filter. And she got it. Okay. And a part of a lot of my healing with sexual trauma and romance and all of that came from really kind of working through a lot of non-sexual romantic attachments I had to mm-hmm. to to women. And I couldn't like name them as being queer experiences or lesbian experiences or whatever. And I had never seen anything like them represented back to me in popular culture, except for a few French movies. I like secretly checked out from the blockbuster video. As a always, always a French movie. 
Always the French. They're just like, ooh, we all love all the time, all these different ways. Oh, why are you ashamed that you love this 47-year-old woman, you know? And, and like with Phil, it was like, a, oh, I belong. Because, I mean, from astrology to peer-reviewed scientific articles, we are trying to figure out how we belong all the fucking time. And... And, I, and Phil just, she's one of my all-time favorite people. She did pass in 2019. She was 91. Oh, and wow. I'm glad she's dancing on the other side. That's beautiful you, that you had her as a mentor. Oh, um, I'm so lucky. I'm so I, lucky. So what do you think of the difference between, because you did mention this, lesbian, a lesbian romance versus a queer romance. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't have any exact definitions and, um, but, but the implication there was that I like a lot of how I survived my trauma and made sense of my queerness without recognizing or coming home to my queerness was I was very ashamed of all of these intense crushes I had on older women who I didn't want to have sex with. Mm. And so in this most recent, when you're asking me what the differences were between queerness and lesbianism there, I mean, I don't know if there are differences, but what I, what I was meaning by that is that it wasn't a sort of conventional idea of what I knew lesbians to be, um, which were in a, Mm. in a sexually engaged relationship. And I think for me, queerness is exactly the name for things that are unnameable, which is why it goes into spirituality for me, you know, Mm. because spirituality is ultimately mysterious and unnameable. And yeah, and so when I was in my 20s, I got more exposed to the queer scene here, and I still struggled to identify with the queer scene as much as we identified politically in all these other ways. And I knew I was weird. I knew I wasn't a straight girl. As much as I was trying to be, I knew I wasn't happy, and I knew I had all these huge crushes on women that I didn't want to sleep with, and I wasn't sure what that was about, but I knew it was because I was, you know, a freak and fucked up and a pervert and a sexual deviant sound familiar it was like such a classic story but i'm like nobody gets me no one's ever experienced this and part of that was was confirmed by the fact that the queers i did know in real life who were my age were still very much participating in a dominant queer culture even though that's a contradiction because queerness is all about upending dominant culture they were still educated they were mostly white they still looked very similar to one another even if their appearances were radical or alternative they still had very similar affects vocal fry they had similar backgrounds you know and they still were peers who were attached and attracted to each other. And I wanted that so badly. I still wanted to be normal, even among the freaks. Even, there was yeah. a normalcy that I wanted to participate in. Would you say that there is, among queer women, would you say that there's some kind of body politics there? Oh, huh? yeah. And we live in an anti-femme world. And queer, mm. I mean, because the patriarchy to me is defined by anyone who is perceived as feminine can always be attacked and should be inta- attacked. And that is encouraged. And so I was kind of fat and I have huge tits and I was even more femmy then and like trying to pass as straight then. And so I was very much seen as like a a sad little straight girl who was hanging out with these queers trying to belong or whatever. And I was not seen as sexually attractive to any of those folks who who were the cool queers. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it was because of my femininity, I think. And I also deviate from femininity right which also if you present as feminine you can be regulated and disciplined often in a violent way and then if you deviate from the assumption of femininity when you're perceived as feminine you can also be violently disciplined 
it's okay if it's parodied, right? Like maybe in a drag context or something, which drag is more than parody. That's not what I'm trying to say. But in my experience, there was this perception that like drag is fabulous among the cool queers, but like an actual loudmouth cunt who's not dressed in fabulous sparkles, looking super femmy or whatever, is a pain in the ass. But, you know, being yourself is the coolest version. Yeah. Well, thank you. I I do want to end with our we do a rapid fire set of questions. So what's your favorite queer movie? Uh, recent, probably Carol. That's the first one that's popping mm-hmm. into my head. Um, I will always love The Birdcage and Priscilla, of mm-hmm. course. I loved mm-hmm. Moonlight, was pa- one of the most powerful queer movies I've ever seen. I haven't seen um, it. Oh my God. Traitor. No, I'm just kidding. Why. You got to watch that. And then I like some crappy, low budget queer movies. Um, I like Desert Hearts. I like ones where, like, especially if queer feminized people aren't getting murdered or dying well, or separated yes. through their straight <laughs> husbands or partners or something. If you were very unfortunately to be in a fire, if there was a fire in your house, what is the one mm-hmm. thing you would save? The painting from Phil that I'm looking at that she painted. Are you good at trivia? Depends. If it's mm. gay or gay adjacent, I'm really good. Finally, if you were to win the lottery, what would be the first thing you'd get? Okay, my first thought was very noble, which is like support, like family of origin, women get the fuck out of like terrible marriage and housing situations. But the first thing I would actually do is go and buy the fanciest fucking joint I could find at the fanciest weed shop nearby. That's probably the first thing I would do. Do you like a fat and then a joint really delicious or, like a, meal. or like a streamlined joint? Mm, it could be a fatty as long as it was like excellent quality. I like that. And then of course a really wonderful meal to go with it. You know. <laughs> okay. All right. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much for telling us your story and sharing so much with us. I really, I really appreciate it. I feel some casual magic, to be honest. Yes, me too. Yay. This is so fun. Thank you so much. This is so inspiring. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Molly. If you like the show, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. And if you've got a moment, please rate and review us. Our show is produced by Diego Amato and myself, producer Steven. Music by Noah Crickshank. Get in touch with us. Email us at diego at queerinlove.com.